0: You're listening to Wiley Connected, a series of podcasts on tech, law, and policy. In each podcast, technology focused lawyers at Wiley, a Washington, D.C. law firm, break down innovation and law with a uniquely D.C. perspective.
1: Well, thank you very much for joining us for today's podcast. We have here at our firm the author, a professor, and someone who is extraordinarily well-known on internet-related issues, Laura Donardis. She's professor at American University. Also, she's interim dean as well, so she's wearing many hats. Laura and I have worked together for a number of years on a variety of projects, and we are thrilled, Laura, to have you with us today.
2: Great to be here. Thank you very much.
1: I thought we might wanna talk a little bit about your extraordinary new book. Uh, You've written many books before. You have a book that's just now coming out called The Internet in Everything. It's not of everything, it's not for everything, it's in everything. And so it's a really extraordinarily unique take, almost really a tour de force, I would say, about internet regulation and the role of the internet, both today and in the future. How did you come to write the book?
2: The moment I put down the laptop for one of my previous books, which was called The Global War for Internet Governance.
1: A bestseller, by the way. Thank
2: you very much. I had a nagging thought and in some cases, like a sense of dread that I've missed something terribly important. And that is when you talk about the battles over the control of the Internet and the question of how the Internet is governed. I asked myself the question, well, how will the Internet of Things affect this? So I addressed it a little bit in that last book, which came out. I finished writing it in 2013, but as soon as I finished it, I set out to challenge myself with that question of what will this transformation of the Internet from a communication system into the physical world, which we sometimes call the Internet of Things, what will that mean for my own field of Internet governance and what the major battles are? And that's why I wrote the book.
1: As you were writing the book, were you surprised by new thoughts, surprised by how the topic was developing as you were writing?
2: Many things surprised me, and the biggest one is that all of the major discussions about cyber policy, about internet governance, really still are based on content on the digital economy, on speech rights, on hate speech, on you know all kinds of things that have to do with content. But the more consequential issues are the ones that are embedded into the physical world all around us. And it moves the question from one of speech rights to in privacy to one of consumer safety and to a greater extent national security. So it, ha- it surprised me. Um, how consequential the issue is this is a major transformation
1: and is that a transformation that you think that is generally appreciated by policymakers and by other observers or is this something that is still uh, not discussed very much
2: Many policymakers are aware of the connection between internet infrastructure and national security, for example. This has been a question that has gone back decades when people talked about a digital Pearl Harbor back in the 1990s, like the question of what could happen via cyberspace that could disrupt the national security apparatus, that could dis- disrupt many different economic sectors. But that really focused on the information systems that are tangential to these kinds of economic and national security systems. What this is, is the embedding of the internet into the physical infrastructure where you have objects that are cyber and objects that are also physical. And I think that particular switch is not widely being discussed. It's not understood because it's invisible. You can't see it in the same way that you can see issues of digital content. So think about when anyone uses what we call the internet. You see three different things. You see the digital content, you see the device through which you're accessing the internet such as a phone or a laptop, and you see in many cases an application. This transformation is unseen because you don't enter it through a screen necessarily.
1: That brings me to the very beginning of your book. You start off uh, in the very first chapter, which is a chapter entitled After the Internet, with an extraordinary idea that you then uh, discuss, which is basically what would happen if we all, we, people, humans, disappear from the face of the earth? and what does that mean in terms of internet. And it really illustrated for me what you mean by the the internet in everything. If you wouldn't mind, could you just read that first paragraph, or at least part of that first paragraph for us?
2: Absolutely. I asked myself the question, what would the internet be doing if humans suddenly left the earth? And that led to this first paragraph. If humans suddenly vanished from earth, the digital world would still vibrantly hum. Surveillance cameras scanning streets from Beijing to Washington would stream video. Self-driving trucks would haul material around an Australian mine. Russian social media bots would circulate political propaganda. Internet-connected thermostats would regulate home climates. Robots would move merchandise around massive warehouses. Environmental sensors would gauge air pollution levels. A giraffe wandering around a game reserve would trigger a motion detector that opens a gate. Bank accounts would make mortgage payments. Servers would mine Bitcoin. Until electricity stops flowing, cyberspace lives.
1: It's really, I thought, an extraordinarily effective beginning of a book because it really seemed, at least for me, to help readers change their perception about the internet from being a thing, a communications uh, term, and a network of networks to being something that really is independent and is really ubiquitous uh, in its nature, at least in the developed world and increasingly in the developing world. Was that your intent?
2: Absolutely. And it speaks to the extent that the internet is no longer a communication network. It still is a communication network, but it's also a control network in which literally more things than people are connected and in which battles over the control of these things are a proxy for political power
1: and speaking about things like political power obviously when governments get together to talk about the internet it usually is in the form of discussions about human rights and a variety of other things internet freedom one of the topics that you discuss in your book for example uh Those are different than the issue about uh, the physical world and the Internet aspects and the governance aspects in the physical world. How do they relate to each other uh, in the sense that uh, policymakers have focused a lot on those human rights, free flow of information, those types of issues? How do they relate uh, to these other very basic, practical, physical aspects of the Internet?
2: What is the thing that we're talking about in the Internet of Things is the first question. So it usually uh, is, is a term that is designed to capture home appliances and things that are in homes like ring doorbells, like connected refrigerators, but it also very much speaks to the municipal Uh, installation of things like, you know, smart city technologies, transportation systems that are connected. And it also refers to what is, uh, can be called the internet of self, meaning that the body is part of the digital object space now. Things like connected insulin pumps, connected cardiac devices, and all of this in addition to the industrial internet of things. And I say that as a back drop because we have to change the object of analysis around policy moving from the screen-based internet into these um, internet of self, industrial and internet of things and smart city environments. So what that does for policy is it requires us, and this is kind of why I use the term after the internet even though I use the term internet in my own work still, that's why I use that term to capture how we have to rethink definitions of the internet itself definitions of what counts as a tech company and definitions of what counts as um, an internet user. When you do that, you have to rethink the internet freedom issue. So what is a tech company in this environment? Um, I like to uh, cite our European friends. They use the acronym GAFAM a lot, which stands for Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft, the that's what we have always thought of as tech companies. And they're very important as tech companies. But now if you think about the internet embedded in everyday objects, all firms are tech companies. They all gather massive amounts of data about us. Um, It just completely changes the nature of who is responsible for the privatization of governance, for the privacy issues, for the security issues.
1: Does that suggest that uh, up until fairly recently, when people speak about internet and uh, laws associated and policies associated with the internet, it's been really thought of as sort of a separate category? You know, what should we do about the internet? Driven in part by the uh, global nature of it, uh, driven in part by the, uh, as you point out, the communications aspect of it, but. As you point out now, uh, it's become truly embedded in everything and affects everything. Does that suggest that thinking about the internet and internet policies as a separate thing is perhaps something from the 20th century and in the 21st century, perhaps it's really more about what everything else, the laws and policies that govern everything else?
2: Well, a big leap forward would be to bring together what you and I would call the cyber communities and the internet communities, like that, would be a big step forward. We have been in a lot of rooms where like-minded experts would use the term cyber when they're talking about national security and talking about, you know, various, um, you know, intelligence and law enforcement issues, and then they suddenly shift to using the term internet when they're discussing the digital economy or human rights. So a big leap forward would be acknowledging that the same exact technologies in one discussion are the the same in the other discussion, and that we have to bring those communities together. But in answer to your question, we have to uh, proceed even further than that, because the, the nature of internet policy is now even more capacious. It connects to environmental policy because of the embedded sensors that are in the world. It can affect the environment. The Internet of Things is also used very much to protect the environment, whether having, um, using sensors for climate change or having sensors in energy distribution systems to tell when there is some kind of a leak in an oil system. It's very embedded. It's, it's very difficult to separate those as two different issues. And the same holds with human rights and other policy issues like labor, for example. So it may be the case that... Ten years from now we may never use the term internet policy at all because it kind of seeps and diffuses into all of these other areas.
1: One of the characteristics about discussions about the Internet or cyber, and cyber in the national security usually sense, internet in terms of mostly the economic and human rights sense, has been its global aspects and the struggles about whether or not the rules are better done globally, universally, or by nation states or localities in some fashion. Does the change to the Internet in everything change from your perspective, that equation about who makes the rules and how they get enforced?
2: Many of the similar conundrums between the local and the global just translate into this area, Um, but it does change the nature of the actors and who holds power. So we have lots of acronyms. I'll try not to use any acronyms in in this area. But um, there's a shifting power structure. Um, We usually call this multi-stakeholder internet governance. Um, That is very much the case in the cyber-physical world as well. But there are so many more standard-setting organizations that are infusing this area. It kind of shifts the nature of who has the power in standard-setting. And the nature of global control struggles become more important because, rather than just reaching across borders to, like, hack into Equifax, which is bad enough, you could reach across borders to um, assassinate someone through their cardiac appliance, for example. So, you know, the a concern
1: that Vice President Cheney had in your book, as you talk about in your book,
2: that's a really interesting. I try to weave historical examples in a way to explain that this is not a completely new issue, right? So there was the Stuxnet code that really helps us to understand the connections between physical infrastructure and, um, you know, the the digital world in that that was code designed to disrupt the Siemens control systems in the nuclear program of Iran to slow down the nuclear program. And I use the example of Dick Cheney's uh, cardiac appliance because his doctor disclosed in an interview long after the fact that they had ordered the disabling of the you know wireless connection in his pacemaker in in abundance of caution so that he would not be assassinated. So absolutely the local objects like that are very much global objects and so the global internet governance terrain becomes more important and more complicated.
1: You, you talk a little bit about standard setting and some of those issues as well. Obviously, that's been much in the news with Huawei and the issues associated with that on the internet slash telecommunications side of 5G and, and the like. What's your sense about um, the global setting of uh, these types of uh, internet-related um, and 5G-related and 6G-related um, uh, standards?
2: It is a, it's a like a spaghetti um, environment. So, there, we've had a long history. That, th- ask the question of ourselves: Why have we had so much innovation around the internet? Part of the answer to that, as Vint Cerf would say, is they gave it away for free, right? There were standard, agreed upon standards that were open so that one manufacturer could take the standard and run with it and develop products to ensure that they were compatible with other standards. That's not necessarily the case yet in the Internet of Things. There are multiple competing standard setting institutions and multiple competing uh, standards, and it's not yet uh, certain which one will Um, dominate. On the 5G front, um, I I really tried to determine how much to talk about five G in the book, and I decided to not talk about it very much at all, because that is a standards battle that goes well beyond this area, and it's an access um, capability, you know, just like GPS, just like Wi Fi, just like Bluetooth, just like you know the many near field communication access technologies. So, um, but the questions that are arising in that absolutely translate into the Internet of Things, and I think they make them more important because of the consumer safety consequences of getting it right and also the um, intelligence capability that, uh, you know, the question of whether to use Chinese uh, products, for example, is even more important when you think about the intimate spheres of human existence in which these technologies reside, not only in the office place or um, through a phone, but in bedrooms and kitchens, in cars, you know, anything, any intimate sphere of human existence.
1: One of the things you touch on uh, related to that is this tension between having sort of global standards and global approaches versus the used to be referred to as permissionless innovation. Uh, You mentioned what Vint Cerf and others used to talk about in the earlier days when the Internet and Internet related things were more confined, less ubiquitous in terms of everyone's life now you don't see that as much uh, because there are intellectual property rights issues there's a whole host of things that have people very concerned as you point out also security and things of that nature how do you see this evolving down the road these tensions between innovation versus security and protection whether it's of health or other things do you see uh, the pace of innovation in this space increasing decreasing or staying about the same over the next few years?
2: I think it's going to continue to increase. And it's going to increase even though there is a resurgence of proprietary standards. There are several things that I can say about this, and I have a a chapter about it in the book. A terrific chapter, I will quickly add. Right. But the pace of change is so rapid in this area, it's almost hard to even fathom. I mean, I'm remembering back to the days when Um, Do you remember Ken Olson, the president of DEC, said why would anyone want to have a personal computer in a home in 1977? A lot of people are saying now why would anyone want to have a personal computer inside of all the objects in a home? Right? It's a completely moot question because the innovation is happening so quickly. Um, But what is different about this? is that uh, we have always thought about this universality as inherent to the internet. It's tied closely to internet freedom. It's tied closely to this question of permissionless innovation as you described. What is different in this is that we may not want that universality. I've been an advocate of open standards my entire life, and I think they're still very important for the infrastructure that underlies the common platforms on which the internet is built but we may not want a toaster to connect to a nuclear reactor and it may not be a bad thing to have fragmentation in this space so i think the way it will evolve is that innovation will continue that we want to ensure open standards at the underlying infrastructure level of the internet addressing routing switching you know, the ability to have interoperability where necessary, but then within certain sectors, there will be uh, more proprietary architectures.
1: And uh, within that uh, diversity of architectures, as you point out, uh, presumably you can have a lot of experimentation uh, and a lot of different things where not everyone has to go along with the same approach, which you might have to have if you have more universal standards and approaches.
2: Not everyone has to go along with the same approach. In fact, they're not doing that. There is such a rush to innovation right now. Um, Let's see how it evolves and which standards dominate. It may not be a bad thing to have competing standard-setting organizations, never mind competing proprietary architectures in this space. It's not slowing down the innovation at all, and I find that really interesting.
1: Yeah, there's a major international meeting uh, this upcoming November that the International Telecommunications Union uh, will be holding, as they do every four years, the World Telecommunications Standardization Assembly. Uh, The ITU, which is part of the UN, is one of the major global uh, standard-setting bodies, traditionally standard-setting for the telecommunications industry, not the Internet community more broadly. Um, But it is an intergovernmental organization, and you talked about multi-stakeholderism, and some governments are better at multi-stakeholderism than other governments. Um, But it is a place, obviously, where discussions about uh, standards and standard setting and the nature of those standards are, are much discussed by governments. So I imagine that will turn into an interesting place where security and the pace of innovation uh, particularly those that are being pushed by the Chinese and others, uh, will be di- will be discussed uh, fairly broadly. Do you see that happening in other places and other organizations as well?
2: I think it's, it's going to increase. I actually don't feel like there are enough fora yet that are addressing some of these issues. And this is why. The issue of security in the Internet of Things is one of the most important issues in society right now. That's why I keep saying that cybersecurity is the great human rights issue of our time. It's necessary for securing the digital economy, it's necessary for national security, but now it is also completely necessary for consumer safety issues, where instead of sabotaging something like our ability to send email to each other, it sabotages something like, potentially, the brakes of a car, or the working of um you know a heating system at home that could potentially create a fire. So th- the way to have strong security is to have many different stakeholders. In the same way as you could argue in you know the internet as an information system, having more eyes on the standard, having more eyes in the development of it will make it more secure. And where it stands right now is that the the internet of things security is not anywhere near sufficient. Every major authority in this area agrees that it's just not secure. Part of that is because of the uh, rapid introduction of products. Part of it is because there are technological constraints. And this is where the standards bodies need to come in more. How do you build in something like encryption in a device that is what's called a very constrained architecture it may have limited processing power. It may have limited memory. But you have to build in issues like authentication, upgradability, and privacy design into these environments.
1: And you point out in the book, you know, some there's some a lot of real-world examples of some of those problems where you have uh, CCTV uh, cameras um, that are Internet-connected. Uh, creating what in essence are uh, DDoS attacks, or similarly, refrigerators and other types of uh, devices being hijacked to to do these types of things by uh, by people who are trying to create problems. Do you? But you point out that there's, as you just did, there's this tension between innovation, keeping things very low cost, very simple, um, but the need for security, uh, which is a more communal. Uh, Interest is this a role for governments and in is it a role for global uh, interests, uh, domestic? How does this get worked out?
2: It's a multi-stakeholder problem in which we're all affected by it, and it has to be a multi-stakeholder solution at the international level, at the national level, in privatized settings. Uh, cooperation among companies, within companies, terms of service. And I would, ju- I'll come back to that, but I just want to say we all are also responsible for this. Ask yourself the question like, who might be president now if one person did not click on a phishing link? How is that connected to the Internet of Things? It is connected to the Internet of Things because all of this data that's collected. Through the uh, security cameras that you just mentioned, can make phishing attempts much more believable. So, if it has the whiff of truth, someone might click on a link, triggering some kind of a problem. So, it's related to election interference. It's related to all kinds of things that are uh, necessary for democracy. Never mind our consumer security. So, if you if you think about the Mirai botnet, for example, which hijacked millions and millions of home devices and exploited those to carry out a DDoS attack, a denial of service attack, on major information providers such as Twitter and Reddit. It's a reminder that the security of everything is only as good as the security of these devices. So people have a role to play in this when they come back from the hospital and they set up a baby monitor the last thing they're thinking about is upgrading a password but that is very important right just to try to keep our devices secure in the homes at the corporate level uh, there are many efforts now to figure out how to build in privacy by design how to have um, upgradability how to have um lifecycle management so I think that'll be a new terrain too at the corporate level to figure out how do how can we have lifecycle management and have upgrades in the same way that we have with our iPads and iPhones that is to be determined and that has to rest with the private sector to determine that
1: um, you point out things like changing passwords and famously uh, both uh, corporate corporations and individuals are remarkably bad about these types of things um, Uh, often the initial settings are not changed uh, for secure, you know, make things more secure and the like. Does this basically have to be automated in some fashion um, so that it is less uh, dependent upon individuals doing the right thing and that it in fact happens in a more um, automatic fashion?
2: It does have to be more automatic because many of these devices don't have any relationship with people they're conducting ambient data collection or someone may move into a home and not have a relationship with the devices in the home. I saw someone recently access, a, I won't say the type of device, but access a device in a home they used to live in. So. It's, it's it's not about individuals anymore, right? So in the same way, privacy is not about individuals anymore. Um, that gets back to the question of who is an internet user. You don't have to have any uh, relationship with technology or even be on the internet at all to be affected by this. So that puts us in an environment that's post-consent security, post-consent privacy, and um, requires more automated um upgrades and uh, life cycle management. And I, you, you asked about governments before, much of this because it is um, necessary to be in the background context of, of life. It's, you know, I haven't been a huge proponent of regulation of intermediaries in the past, but this is one area where we need some kind of meaningful IoT legislation that speaks to the issue of what is the minimum security requirement that should be in a device and how is it managed over time.
1: I assume you're thinking there that that would have to be done as a matter of sort of domestic legislation rather than some international treaty.
2: Right. But in the same way that the GDPR in in terms of privacy has effects on companies all over the world, uh, national legislation in this area would have effects, too, because most manufacturers sell products into most of the world.
1: One of my takeaways from your wonderful book is that you are an optimist on these things, that you identify lots of challenges, lots of problems. But ultimately, you're you're quite optimistic about uh, the impact this will have on people generally. Um, talk a little bit about that, because I would would not like to have uh, our listeners have the misimpression that somehow the internet and cyber are is a world full of problems that are going to get worse, not better, over time.
2: I love technology. I'm an engineer by training, and believe that this is an incredibly important area, not only for the economy, but just for human flourishing. Anyone who has a relative with something like Alzheimer's or has a disability themselves uh, will understand the importance of these assistive devices. Anyone who has a health issue and is aided by diagnostic equipment that has Uh, like a near field uh, communication or Bluetooth communication understands the benefits of this. So it is closely tied to human flourishing. It's closely tied to economic development. And anybody, uh, you know, just in their own life understands the efficiencies. We make decisions about what to bring into our uh, spheres of existence based on efficiency. But that doesn't mean that we should not be aware of the security and privacy issues. It's exactly because of the importance of this technological change, which I think is just as major as the change from an industrial society to an information society. This move from the internet, from a digital system to a cyber physical system is a huge change. But just acknowledging that and acknowledging the very real issues does, is not dystopian at all. It's because it is so important that we have to get the issues right.
1: I love, along those lines, um, the epilogue in your book, uh, in which you have a, um, a wonderful uh, example um, of how the world is a significantly better place because of some of these technologies. If you wouldn't mind, as we conclude this podcast, uh, reading uh, this very brief epilogue that you put together.
2: Thank you very much. I'll read the last couple of sentences of the book and then the epilogue. The merging of cyberspace with the physical world is clearly here, even if this chapter is still in its infancy. Connected sensors and actuators are in everything, including the flesh. Being human and being digital are now physically intertwined. The internet has had many chapters, its leap from the digital world to the physical world is an extraordinary one. And then the brief epilogue. The week I completed this book, a five-year-old boy received his first 3D-printed prosthetic arm at a Home Depot in Annapolis, Maryland, not far from my home in Washington, DC. A wonderful sales associate created the prosthetic arm on a Dremel 3D printer using blueprints he downloaded from an organization called Enabling the Future, a group of volunteers around the world who use their 3D printers to fabricate free upper limbs, artificial upper limbs for people in need. The smile on the boy's face is a reminder that building digital trust and security is ultimately about people. The cyber-physical nexus is a human space.
1: A wonderful way to end our conversation. For our listeners again, uh, thank you very, very much, uh, Professor Laura Denardis author of the very recently released the internet in everything available from amazon and bookstores near you a terrific book i recommend people to read it don't wait for the movie version but go out and read it as soon as possible thank you very much for joining us today
2: thank you very much
0: if you enjoyed this episode of wiley connected we encourage you to subscribe rate and leave a review on itunes and soundcloud for additional resources and materials head over to WileyConnect.com. Thank you for listening. The views, information, or opinions expressed during our podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Wiley Ryan LLP and its employees. The material contained in this podcast is not intended to be and is not considered to be legal advice. Transmission is not intended to create and receipt does not establish an attorney-client
2: relationship.